The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome to Psych Up Live. I'm Dr. Suzanne Phillips. And on this show, we will be turning up the psychological perspective on many life issues. As the former host of Psych Up on Casozo Radio, I joined with terrific guests to host 73 shows. This show is different because it includes you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and call in with a question or a comment. You can tweet me at healing number four couples. Today's show is going to turn up the perspective on sex, more specifically the spoken and unspoken norms and assumptions that we are inundated with in movies, advertisements, TV series, sports articles, and health magazines. How did these shape the way we think, act, and feel about sex today? Our guest is journalist Rachel Hills. She is the author of the new bestseller, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality. Rachel Hills is an Australian writer living in New York City. She's interested in the space where the personal meets the political. Her work has been published in many, many magazines and other publications, including the New York Times, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, Rachel Hills, welcome to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me, Suzanne. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, so, Rachel, my first question, the title is The Sex Myth. When I think of myths, I think of widely held but false beliefs that often are promoted by a culture. And it made me wonder, why did you personally write this type of book? What prompted you? Well, I've always been personally moved by other books I've read that seek to put personal experience into a kind of broader social and cultural context. For me, that has been really powerful and transformative. And the subject of sex was one that was very fraught for me when I was younger, especially. So when I was in the late teen, in my late teens, but in particular in the first half of my 20s, I felt very different when it came to my sex life and kind of defective, uh, specifically because I wasn't having any sex at the time. And that was so counter to the story that we hear in our society about what it is to be young and what it is to be, you know, a modern, empowered young woman, 
that I felt like I was the only one who was experiencing this, and I felt like there was something defective about me. And it was a realization that, firstly, I wasn't alone in um, in either not having sex or not having as much sex as um, we're told that people are generally having. But right. that secondly, so many other people were carrying around the same kind of feeling of difference and defectiveness and aloneness, almost irrespective of what their sex lives looked like. That made me feel like this would be an area that would be really ripe to research and to understand and it would really help people to write about. Mm. So um, you you start with yourself, and then you actually do some research, and you travel yes. across many <laughs> countries to do that. Tell us a little bit about your research and who it was that you mostly surveyed and interviewed. Sure. So my research kind of comprised two main elements. I I interviewed around 200 people uh, across the United States, uh, the UK, Australia, and Canada. And they were of all different genders, men, women, gender non-binary. They were of different races and ethnicities. They were of different sexualities. They were mostly aged in their 20s when I spoke to them, Um, some a little younger, some a little older. Uh, But they were mostly of my generation at the time that I was writing the book, and obviously still of my generation because of all aged. Uh, But I think that the equally important part of the book that uh, the equally important part of my research when it comes to the development of my ideas. So those those interviews were really important in terms of putting a human face to the ideas, but the way in which I developed the argument in and of itself was very much grounded in uh, pulling together other people's research and other people's ideas across the fields of psychology and sociology and philosophy mm-hmm. to really understand the kind of special importance that sex is given in our culture and how this then serves to shape the way that we think about sex. Yes, I, I mean, and that's one of the benefits of the book, so interesting, is the way you weave other people's research into it uh, in terms of really amplifying your findings and even looking a little closer at the meaning. What are some of the things you found? Well, what I found is that we we live in a culture that says that how, with whom, and how often we have sex reveals it's not just a reflection of what we value, but it's a reflection of how valuable we are. So we're sold the story that if you know how somebody has sex, you know, firstly, how desirable they are. Uh, you know uh, whether or not their relationship is going well, whether they desire their partner or whether their partner desires them, or whether they are moral, upstanding people, or alternatively, whether they are, you know, enlightened and liberated. Uh, And all all of these things mean that the way that we engage with sex, all of these meanings that we attribute to sex, means that the way that we engage with the sex is really kind of intimately tied with our perceptions of who we are and how we're valued. And it means that when when our experiences deviate from what we've been told they should be when it comes to sex, we kind of carry that very close to our heart, more so than other aspects of human life. Well, one of the things that was so interesting in terms of that is, so we all buy the the myth that um, our sexuality is a lens for who we are, our value, our attractiveness, even our self-esteem. And we may or may not act on this, but we certainly think everyone else is. And the whole notion is that most people actually don't know 
about others' sexual lives, but we make wonderful assumptions about this. And I loved your, um, when you discussed uh, Michael Kimmer's book, Guyland, and you... Yes, you t- some yes. of the statistics very early in the book. Yeah, he, um, he wrote a wonderful book called Guyland, looking at masculinity in America. And one of the questions that he'd ask young men when he was traveling around was what proportion of their peers they thought were having sex on any given weekend. Um, it's funny how we always talk about sex happening on weekends, by the way, as well, as yes. if it couldn't possibly happen, you know, during a weeknight <laughs> right. or during right. the day. It's always on the weekend. But anyway, they thought that the, they, they, most of them, the average estimate they gave was, oh, 80% of my peers had sex last Saturday. And, um, of course, the truth is, uh, well, if the research that he'd come across or that he'd done was that actually only 80% of them had ever had sex, like, ever. Right, And so right. the proportion on an actual, on any given, you know, Saturday night, which is, you know, one day out of 365 each year, was more like 5 to 10%. Right. So there was this vast overestimation of the amount of sex that other people were having. You know, a similar study just came out. It was in New York Magazine on um, college sex in 2015. So they polled 700 students, and they asked them about hooking up, which can be anything from sex to actually having intercourse. And much to their surprise, a significant number said, oh, yeah, it happens, and some people think it's great, but I'm not buying into it. Uh, in fact, yeah, 40 But 40%, even more interestingly, yeah. I think 38% of the people that they interviewed had never had sex. Yes, which right. Number, I mean, that's higher than the number that the research Kimmel referred to um, suggested, and obviously their research was a little less scientific, but it's just also vastly higher than what anybody imagines when it comes to college students or, you know, adults in general. Well, and what's it's so, it's so interesting because we both saw that is... Nonetheless, although a 38% had never had sex, they still assumed that other people were having much more sex than they were. That there is, part of the myth is that the reality that they're experiencing belongs only to them. It's like you said you felt. You must be the only defective mm-hmm. one, or you're not the only one having a wild time on the weekends. Um, yeah. I want to I add um, that... I know your research took place with the 25 to 30-year-olds, but I would suggest to you that no age group is spared the impact of the overt and subliminal suggestions that are nonstop. I mean, on the, on TV, the every age group is seeing sex that's novel, sex that's interesting equals happiness. The Viagra ads imply this is the quick way for everything to be wonderful and the couple smiling. Uh, On the TV series, everyone is hot and heavy every moment, whether it's in a law office or a hospital. So Mm -hmm. right across the board, everybody's thinking everyone but me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I mean... Um, I do I do probably get more emails from people who are in their 20s because that's where the focus of my book mm-hmm. is. But I also get emails and messages from people who are in their 40s or older. Uh, so I think that the sex myth does absolutely impact people regardless of how old they are. Mm-hmm. I, I just focused on the younger age group in part because I was 25 when I started working right, on the book. Right. But also because I was doing it in an academic setting. And in that setting, they're always telling you, make your question as narrow as possible. So right. focusing on, on 20-somethings is kind of my way of narrowing the question, even though I wish that I'd interviewed people uh, with a wider range of age groups. 
Well, I think you really do in some way have a message for every age group. Now, when you speak about the sex myth, you talk about it as having two layers, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a bit? So... So, yeah, the two layers of the sex myth derive, I guess, out of the initial questions that I was asking myself when I was researching the book, which was, um, I feel bad about my sex life at that time. So do so many other people. Why is this? So I wanted to examine the stories that circulate around sex in our culture and then how those stories kind of collide with and rub up against our sense of who we are and how we're valued. And um, the first layer of the sex myth is the most obvious one. It's one that so many of us are able to identify, which is that we're, we're sold this story of sex in our culture in which sex is kind of constantly available. Uh, so unless you are either uh, highly religious, so you have some moral reason not to be participating in it, or unless you're highly undesirable, sex is there, it's available, and you're probably having it. Because if you're not, something is amiss. So it's that myth of the kind of hypersexual society. But the second layer of the myth, which I think uh, is, it's, it's kind of more, it tra- it's not just specific to this current historical moment, but you can see it in the stories that have circulated about sex in Western culture over centuries, is this idea that what we do when it comes to sex is something vital about who we are. So it's the meaning that we invest in sex. It's the specialness and the kind of magical properties that are attributed to sex. This idea that it will transform us from children into adults, uh, that it, that it you know, can make our relationships or break them, uh, that you know, if, you have, if you think of yourself as being straight and then you experience an attraction to somebody of the same sex, you are transformed rather than this just being part of your sexuality. It comes to define it. Mm. One of the one of the interesting things in terms of that is, would you say that our social media, let's say Facebook, texting, sexting, etc., has even fueled um, both aspects of this myth? I actually think that social media has been really powerful in challenging the myth, uh, which is something that I note in my conclusion to the book, because I think that one of the main things that perpetuates the sex myth is a kind of single story of how sex is supposed to be. This idea that um, if the majority of people are sexually active after, say, the age of 18 or 20, then surely everybody is doing it and they're doing it all the time. Or if the average couple has sex twice a week or once a week, then that is what everybody is doing rather than it just representing kind of one point on the scale. And I think that what I've seen the internet and social media being really powerful in doing is that they enable people to share their own stories. And I think even more importantly, they often enable people to do that under a kind of, in a kind of semi-anonymous way. So whether you're mm-hmm. commenting on a blog or you have an anonymous Tumblr, an anonymous Twitter, you're able to say things on social media that you wouldn't say in front of your friends or in front of your acquaintances. Certainly. So it's an interesting balance. We have the cultural... Um, innuendos and subliminal messages suggesting this is it, everyone's doing it. Certainly we have the media in terms of TV and and, and, uh, movies doing that. But you're saying there really is a place where people are starting to give voice that, wait a minute, not so fast. And when I say it, I think of how many stories in your book 
where people actually would start out, I think there's one young woman who's trying to sleep with 100 men, and she's clearly, she's into it. Um, but yeah. in, in, somewhere in her story, I think she says to um, you know what? It's stopping. It's not being so. It's not so interesting after a while. And I'm starting to wonder if this has something to do with my insecurities. So I, I was so struck with how often people put an ending on it, where one football player says, "I'm in the five women of weak club." Uh, but maybe <laughs> one. But, but maybe one of these days. I mean, that's I'm going to be a very small yeah. club, the five yeah. women a week club. <laughs> you might be the only person in it if you're in the club. He is in it. But he, but he adds, maybe one of these days I'm going to have an intimate relationship. So the rejoinders often speak to what you're saying. There's a pushback, or there's a, a and wish. yes, that is something I noticed. I mean, that's the story you mentioned about the woman who was trying to have 100 partners. I quote that, but it's actually from Ariel Levy's book, Female Chauvinist Pigs. Mm-hmm. But an example from one of my interviews that kind of captures that is a young woman I spoke to named Megan. And um, Megan, I think, was 24 when I met her, and she was she was a serial monogamist. So she wasn't super into the hookup culture, but she described herself as someone who always has a boyfriend. And she was very conventionally attractive, and um, her boyfriends tended to be as well. And she saw it as almost a kind of exchange, like she would exchange her attractiveness for their attractiveness and they Mm -hmm. would kind of bolster each other up, but they wouldn't particularly like each other. And then at the end of the chapter that she appears in, I'd gotten in touch with her again to fact check some things. And um, she told me she'd broken up with yet another asshole boyfriend, (laughs) but this time she'd met someone who was actually really nice. And the nice thing is that when I spoke to her, even later on after that, she was still with that person, so they were still nice. But I did wonder, I I did kind of self-critique on the fact that so so many of my interviewees, their kind of happy endings, the happy endings to their stories all ended in these kinds of monogamous relationships. And that might be partly because that makes them happy, but I think it's also because that's another story that we've internalized as a society, this redemption story that ends with a monogamous relationship. Relationship. It, it's terrific. We're going to have to take a brief break, and then we're going to come back and expand this conversation. Um, you've been listening to Psych Up Live with Suzanne Phillips, host, and our guest today is Rachel Hills, the author of The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, 
like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Rachel Hills, author and of the sex myth, and we're talking about the way sexual expectations in this culture impact us in terms of our behavior, in terms of what we think about ourselves. Rachel, one of the questions that I had comes right from something you ask, which is, how does it happen that sex has been sold not only as the key to our freedom, but who we are as people and how it is we engage with others? Yeah, it's it's a massive question, and I think it's one that has deep historical roots. I think part of the reason that we kind of invest so much in sex emotionally and symbolically is connected to some of the physical properties of, of sexuality as an act or as a series of acts. I mean, it is a reality that uh, heterosexual sex or sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, at least, has the potential to create life. And um, that is both a really exciting thing and a really threatening thing, which means that historically sex has been something that we've wanted to socially regulate. And you can see how that plays out into the sex myth today. Uh, but similarly, obviously, sex can... It's, can trans- it can transmit diseases and infections. It can potentially kill you. Uh, but on the you know, more optimistic, positive side of things, it also produces orgasms and happy hormones and all these things that make us feel really, really good. Mm-hmm. And the sex myth is kind of the, the kind of set of mythologies and stories that we then tell about those fears and about the, that, that sense of excitement that we have around sexuality. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that you suggest um, is that in some ways, and it's interesting that you're saying part of what drives the myth is probably some anxiety certainly about this and anxiety about mm. our performance and our fear of rejection, etc. Um, but you're saying somewhere in the mix, we've replaced one brand of regulation that sex is not good with mm-hmm. another. 
uh, which yeah. in some which in some ways is just as burdensome. Yes, and I think that those two forms of regulations or those two sets of rules they kind of they coexist. Uh, and I think that, bec- but I think that because we have historically come from a culture where the message of don't have sex has been so strong, there can be a temptation to think that the way to escape that message, which is incredibly negative, especially for people who are queer or people who are women, um, or you know anybody who wants to have any type of sex that isn't married, monogamous, and heterosexual, uh, there's a temptation to then think that what freedom would be would be the inverse of that. So if saying that sex is bad hurts people, then saying that sex is good and wonderful and kind of the ultimate pleasure uh, is, is inversely a kind of form of freedom. But what I found, particularly amongst the people that I was interviewing for my books, is that this idea that sex is amazing and that it is the greatest pleasure that you will have and it bonds you to your partners and it's this mark of your desirability and your coolness is something that also hurts people. And it, it makes many people feel like they're not up to scratch, not just in a superficial way, but in this way that cuts very deeply to the center of their beings. Well, I will say from a clinical point of view, across every age group, people feel and talk increasingly about anxieties about sexual performance, desirability in terms of aging or not looking perfectly like the uh, stars on TV, because now we know if you are attractive, you're more sexy. If you're sexy, that means you are more attractive and around it goes. Um, people yes. start, you, you know, so people are now much more concerned about not measuring up, not to the small tribe they live with, but to these bigger than images, bigger than life images on billboards, in magazines. Um, so there really is much more pressure and much yes. more fear. Yes, and it goes back to a comment that you made at the beginning of our conversation about almost all of us having very little idea of what's happening in other people's sex lives. So it's one thing to compare yourself to, say, your circle of two to five closest friends with whom you might have really honest conversations about the great things that are happening in your life and the challenges that you're experiencing. But when you're trying to compare yourself to billions of other people out there, uh, the reality is you don't actually know what they're doing, generally speaking. So you're, you're kind of comparing yourself to these very fuzzy outlines of people whose experiences you don't truly understand. Hmm. Now, one of the downsides, and again, I can see this often clinically, but you spoke about um, uh, Henry, the case of Henry, is that for some people, if they buy that, that's the criteria. For instance, if a man thinks, okay, that means that women like that type of guy has to be built like Mm -hmm. that type of guy, has to make that kind of money, they opt out tragically and unfortunately. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about the case of Henry. Sure. I mean, Henry's one of my absolute favorite people in the book because he just underwent such transformation in the time that I knew him or the time that I engaged with him. So when I first met him, he was 23 years old and I was living in London in the UK at the time and he lived in a city a few hours away and he'd caught the train in, uh, he'd spent a few hours on the train specifically to come meet me and be interviewed Mm -hmm. for the book, which was really nice and I think spoke to how much he wanted to speak about his experiences. Yes. Um, But he was 
also really insecure about his experiences or his lack thereof of experience because he was a virgin at the time that I spoke to him. And I remember sitting across from him and his cheeks were burning and he was speaking softly and I felt such a huge amount of empathy for him. I could see that he was in so much pain and I, I really wished that I could do something to help to, help to you know, alleviate some of that emotional pain for him, to make him feel okay in himself. And uh, what was more remarkable, or equally remarkable, was that a couple of months after we spoke, he emailed me and he said that he was really embarrassed to have spoken with me, uh, not because he'd told me his secrets, although he had, but because uh, he felt like the fact that he'd spoken with me suggested that he kind of saw himself as a sexual person. And in his email, he's like, well, clearly I'm not because I'm nearly 24 and I haven't had sex and so maybe I just need to accept that it's not going to happen. Mm. So there was this sense that because sex was a reflection of him uh, and a reflection of his desirability and his, and his potential for the future, that his past, therefore, almost defined his future. Mm-hmm. And, of course... By the end of the book, he did have sex for the first time, and he's like, hmm, okay, I mean, it was fun, but it wasn't really that big a deal. I'm not a mm-hmm. better person now than I was six months ago. So interesting, uh, very, very interesting. Now, it fits a little bit also with, I think, a really important um, theme that you um, really develop is that so the messages we get are external, they're subliminal sometimes in terms of ads nonstop, nonstop. But, mm-hmm. the, it, but the internal message we send to ourselves about am I okay sexually, often as a result of those external messages, we might be doing okay, but based on that external message, we start to feel not okay or conflicted. And that was in the case of the woman called Sophie. The one who yes. was in a, she was in a relationship where they were sexual and she seemed to really care about her partner, but she's got a problem. Maybe we can speak about her a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Sophia's case was also really interesting and, and really complex. So when I met her, she was in a long-term relationship. Uh, she would have been in her mid-20s at the time, and she'd started dating that, this guy in her late teens. It was a really long-term relationship. And uh, for the first few years of their relationship, he did not want to have sex with her for religious reasons. And she found this incredibly difficult to deal with for a number of reasons. Firstly, because emotionally and physiologically, she really wanted to have sex. Um, because she had grown up in a culture that said that having sex is a normal part of a relationship and also just because on a really authentic level that was something that she wanted to do. So she wasn't having her needs met within that relationship and that was a really big point of frustration for her. But her other point of frustration, I think, was that she'd really internalized this idea that again, like Henry, that how she engaged with sex had something, it was a reflection of who she was and how she was valued. And Sophia was somebody who was very good looking. If you met her, you would, you would register her as being a kind of hot chick. Um, but because of the fact that even after she and her boyfriend started having sex, it wasn't as often as she would like, she still had doubts about whether or not he desired her, she saw her sex life as being a true reflection of who she was, how she was valued, how desirable she was, than the kind of bucket loads of affirmation that she would get in other parts of her life. 
it's such an interesting example of if you are stuck with a negative perception and you continually ruminate it about it, you will dismiss the reality you live with. She's with someone she she cares about. Maybe there could have been more conversation about it, but it disqualifies, as you say, the other affirmation she got, what was positive about about that you know, relationship. It's an example that makes you worry when people do internalize the external messages, which have they may have to do with, you know, selling a product. They have to do yeah. with selling a movie, but they're taken as, you know, indictments of one's personal sense of self. That's what's risky. Yes, yes exactly. And um, there's, there's a line in the book where I talk about uh, consumer culture and consumer sex, and I say one of the lies we tell ourselves about consumer culture is that it's meaningless. But I'm like, actually, what makes the advertising industry survive or what makes any industry that is dependent on grabbing our attention and then getting us to act in different ways is that it infuses everything that we do with a huge amount of meaning. It, it has to. Uh, it has to make you know, your choice of clothing or the music that you listen to or the car that you buy or the amount of sex you have say something really important about who you are because if you didn't believe that there were high stakes attached to those choices, you might feel more comfortable making whatever choices are actually right for you rather than the ones that they want you to make. Uh, Rachel, I came across a study that said um, the higher the woman's shoes, the greater the man's probability of helping her. And I read this and I thought, no, I like shoes. Yes, of helping and hitting on her. I left that out. Helping helping and hitting on her. Now, I like shoes, but I will tell you (laughs) from a very realistic point of view, when you see some young ladies in the train with shoes so high they can barely walk, everyone's waiting to help because the thought is this woman's going down. In some way, though, she's wearing them because of the very message the consumer um, advertisements have suggested. And in fact, look at that. We have verification. So it's also very, you know, it's like a vicious cycle. Because you really have to step out of it to own your own decision on what you're going to wear and how that's going to impact on your desirability. Yeah, that's hard because it's, it's, I think one of the you know, great challenges as a sociologist or as a social researcher is trying to figure out how to distinguish the things that we truly want from the things that we want because we've been told that we should want them. And then you've got that kind of third group of things you actually don't want to do and you resent the fact that you're being told to do them. Uh-huh. And um, different, and the third group you can probably usually identify because you feel kind of crap on the inside when you think about it. You feel this resistance about what you're being told to do. But differentiating the first and the second is hard. Mm. So, I mean, I'm sure that... If such a thing is a world where we didn't have cultural messages about how we should dress and be, there would still be people who would wear high-heeled shoes. Uh, <laughs> right. But, that's but how, do you, how, how do you know who that's going to be or how? Or, or should you condemn people purely because they're doing something in part because we've been told high heels are sexy? I mean, I don't think so. But I agree that um, they, they're certainly uncomfortable. But I used to wear them a lot. They they can look great, yes. Yeah, Um, exactly. um, One of the things that you talked about is the dilemma of defining your desirability by who desires you. Yes. Which gives an awful lot of power to everyone but you. Yes. 
And I think that's a part of the issue there is wrapping up desirability with desire. So how much other people desire you or who desires you with, um, with what you personally want, which kind of relates to what I was talking about before. But I think... Uh, for women especially, the images that were that are communicated to us through popular culture of sexual women, sexual women, are often very closely aligned with the images that are taken to that are sold to us of sexy women. Uh, yes. So in order to be sexual, you need to first be deemed attractive to others. Uh, but it strikes me that for, for those of us who aren't marked out as being the most attractive people in the world, which is, you know, most of us who aren't Victoria's Secret models, there is a power in, um, in trying to explore our desires in a way that isn't entirely dependent on oh, how much other people desire us. Yeah, yeah. I think an interesting take on it was your description of a young gay man who said the way he kept trying to work to affirm his attractiveness was how attractive the man was who would sleep with him. And yeah, so he Jesus. was yeah, so he was ever on a search for external proofs of his, you know, desirability and attractiveness by reason of someone else. Yes, absolutely. And that also, I guess, connects to Megan's story, which we talked about before, uh, where she was dating these assholes in part because their being attracted to her felt like a compliment. It felt like an affirmation of her own attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the Harry Potter sorting hat in a way. You sort yourself with people who are of approximately equal attractiveness. So accordingly, if people aren't attracted to you, it can be internalized as I'm not good enough for that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, as, as you were hinting at with Yusuf, the excitement of if somebody attractive is interested in you, and gosh, I know I have experiences in my own life. I think of one time in my early 20s where there was someone who I thought was very attractive and they appeared to be interested in me and I was shocked. I was like, how is somebody this attractive interested in me? This is, this is incredible. Well, it, it, when you said your young life, um, and you, it reminds me of the story of the young kid who was very, very attractive compared to everyone else in high school. And then he gets to college and he's like everyone else. And it's like, what happened to me? Um, yeah. And it's, you know, because if it's external like that, it's it's not going to last until you internalize it in some way. Um, but but it's, it's a very interesting concept. One thing I want us to talk about when we come back, we're going to take a brief break, is not only how we take on this myth, but some things we don't think about, like what you call the masculine straitjacket. We think of men of having it so easy in terms of choices and desirability, and it's really not so easy. So we're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. Our guest today is Rachel Hills, the author of The Sex Myth, The Gap Between between our fantasies and reality. We'll be right back. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. No matter what your current situation is, you have a unique story to your life. It's a dynamically changing story that requires constant adjustments to lifestyle and environment. That includes your home. 
As you continue to enhance your living space, you are also making overall improvements to increase the value of your home. Join Laura Minniff each Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time for dynamic insights for your home environment on the Voice America Variety Channel. And start living now. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking to journalist and author Rachel Hills, the author of the new book, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Our Reality. Rachel, one of the things that uh, that I really was um, struck with that I enjoyed reading about in the book was your focus on um, men, uh, young men, yes. and, and that it's not so easy for them. You called it the masculine straitjacket. Yes, absolutely. So it was really important to me to include men's stories in the book, in part because when I was working on it, people assumed that if I was writing a book about sexuality and I was a woman, I would only include women's stories in there. And I think that that reflects something quite pernicious, which is this assumption that only women's experiences of sexuality are political. That while women's experiences of sex are shaped by society and culture, men are just these kind of biologically driven beasts, uh, both for better, uh, as in they allegedly they don't suffer from any of any of the messages that are circulating, and for worse, with this assumption that they are unable to control themselves or that they are purely you know driven by their penises, as the cliche goes. So it was really important to me to create a space within the book, not just in my masculinity chapter, but throughout the book, where men's sexuality was treated as something that was complex and political, which I think reflects the way in which many men really do experience sexuality. Well, one of the things uh, that you said was, you know, they they have a narrower spectrum of acceptable behaviors because 
according to um, masculine, um, I'll say legend, men are never supposed to say no to sex. Anyone Mm -hmm. who appears or chooses to be gay, bisexual, etc., they also have to be sort of... um, feel good about themselves to do what they want without being judged. Um, we had we had a show on male male friendship and the issue of are men allowed to be emotional? Are they allowed to be affectionate? Thankfully, more and more young men are comfortable hugging each other, um, being warm, not feeling so vulnerable, showing emotions. But quite frankly, it is not an easy step for them especially when they are surrounded by other young men. Donna Friedis, when she did the um, the book on the hookup generation, she said, as a group, they were like, yes, everybody's going to hook up and score this weekend. When she interviewed them alone, they were like, I don't really want this. But you're part yeah. of a, you know, difficult. Yeah, that is, that is certainly what the stats show. There was a, There's another book called Challenging Casanova uh, by psychologist Andrew Smiler, uh, which looks at these stereotypes of young men. And he reported that only a quarter of guys said that they would prefer to hook up than be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And this idea that heterosexual guys in particular are only after, you know, quote-unquote hot chicks uh, really didn't seem to be true either, that most of them were more interested in meeting funny, nice, outgoing smart people whose whose company they enjoyed as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one in really interesting stat that I refer to in the book is one done by Seventeen magazine, which found that 21% of 15 to 22-year-old guys had been pressured by a girl to go further sexually than they wanted to. And even more interestingly, 78% of them said that they felt like there was way too much pressure to have sex. So this idea that men will have sex with anyone under any circumstances <laughs> is not true. Interesting. So so interesting and important for our listeners and young men and women to hear. Now, you, you've really taken on the cultural sex myth um, that we're yep. facing. And so the question is, what do you think, Rachel? Should we dismantle this myth? I would and like to so- see us dismantle it, yes. Uh, that is why I wrote the book. Um, yeah, I would like to see us dismantle it because I think that, firstly, it would make us happier people because we wouldn't be carrying around so much baggage about our sex lives. But I also think that it would give people happier sex lives as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because if, if we don't live in a world where we're told that how we engage with sex says something incredibly profound and important about who we are, we feel more able to do things sexually that might interest us, but which we feel too afraid to try because we feel like it might make us dirty or that it might make us immoral or that it just says something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, uh, that doesn't quite align with, with our sense of who we are and what we ought to be. But mm. it also makes it, e- it easier for us to say no to things that we don't really want to do without fear that the, that the lack of sex that we might have or the slightly less sex that we might have in that scenario uh, says something terrible about us or our relationships. And I think on a broader cultural level, it it opens up space to allow other people to engage with sex in the ways that are right for them as well. It makes us less judgmental of other people's sexual choices. It makes us less inclined to see ourselves as being better or worse than other people because of the differences between our sexual trajectories and theirs. 
It's it's really about owning your own sexuality and your own sexual relationship. Just confirming what you're saying, a recent Carnegie Mellon study um, told one group of couples um, they, they had to, to have sex double the amount of time they wouldn't ordinarily have it, and the other group could do whatever they wanted. And the group that was increasing the sex by command found the more they did it, the less satisfied they were and actually the more stressed they were. And of course, you know, not a perfect all-encompassing study, but it really underscores what what, what the um, researcher was suggesting is what you will come to want in your own way is what will bring you the greatest happiness and satisfaction, not what you think your neighbor's doing or what you just saw on TV. And that's part of dismantling this myth, just what you're saying. Yes, and of course it's incredibly hard to to find what it is that we want as se- in a way that's separate from culture and society. Mm-hmm. But I think that, as I said, with that, when I talked about those kinds of three categories, where, the, where there are the things that you would want regardless, uh, where, where, where there are the things that you would want regardless of what society says you should want, and we're normally really clear on those because we feel these on a gut level. And then there are the things that we're told we should want, um, but on a gut level, we just know we don't want them. So those two areas are really clear. But that bit in the middle where there are things that we want, but we're not sure if it's us or if it's the social and cultural forces, uh, that, that area is really, really tricky to navigate. And I think, frankly, impossible to ever come to clear, clear conclusions about. One of the things that you say that I really loved in your book uh, had to do with, in, in my words, taking the valence off sex. Because you're saying, we don't need to, these are your words, we don't need to bottle up and restrict sex to be safe, and we don't need to worship it in order to be free. Yes. You know, yeah, and you're, absolutely. you're talking about this middle ground that we have a right to be comfortable in. Yeah, I think it's about obliterating this idea that some ways of being sexual make you better than other people, that there is a right way to engage with sex and that you need to be following that, whether that's because you want to be moral or because you want to be good in bed or because you want to be sexy. Um, You don't actually need to follow those things. Mm. You maybe mention a little bit, you you quote Julie Decker uh, in terms of her questioning this thought that if you're not having sex, you're suffering from something. Yeah, and I think that that's very much bound up in the sex myth, which, you know, we've we've concentrated a lot on the kinds of links between sex and identity or sex and self-esteem. But I think at the root of the sex myth is this idea that sex itself is separate to other things, that sex is this incredibly powerful force for better or for worse. And I think that part of the power that we attribute to sex means that we can't conceive a world in which some people might not be having sex for whatever reason. And Julie Decker, the writer that I quote at the end of the book, she is an asexual writer. And uh, so she was kind of, she was talking about how kind of that plays out for her as a sexual, as an asexual person. She mm-hmm. says that one, one unintended consequence of the sexual revolution has been that people now, people now assume that, quote, everyone who, who doesn't celebrate sex or include it literally in the, liberally in their lives is suffering from internalized oppression. So freedom means freedom to carve out a life that works for you, not just the freedom to do something mm-hmm. or to not mm-hmm. do it. It's, it's, a, it's a really powerful message. Uh, let me ask you, Rachel, in the research and in writing this, this book is a gift. It's really a, a terrific book. 
What was the most surprising thing you found? Oh, there are a couple of things. So, I mean, it took me such a long time that at this point nothing surprises me anymore. (laughs) But I think that very early on in the research that I did, some of the statistics that I came across on uh, young people's sexual practices really surprised me. So there's a study that I don't think I quote in the book, but that I sometimes quote in talks, which is the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health, which looks at young people's behavior across a variety of different things. And it found that the most common number of sexual partners per year for someone aged between 18 and 23 was one. So in statistics, <laughs> this is the mode. It's not the average, but it's just the most common, common response that people give. And the next most common number after that was zero, and the next most common number after that is two. And that's not to suggest that if you're having far more partners than that, you're doing something wrong because averages are certainly not, you know, moral imperatives. But that was really surprising to me. That is interesting. And I think the other thing that I found surprising and that has been really powerful and transformative for me in writing the book and in my life since I finished it is the number of people I spoke to while researching it who had sexual trajectories that were very different from my own. Uh, So given that my motivation for writing it was feeling bad about the fact that I was a 20-something virgin, uh, I assumed that lots of similar people would reach out to me. And some of them did, but also people who had had a lot of sexual partners or who were polyamorous or who were still carrying around baggage for the fact that they were queer in some way. Um, I found a lot of commonality with people whose experiences were very different to my own. And that has been really eye-opening and I think has given me a greater sense of permission to explore sexuality either literally or, you know, just within the realm of my own imagination in ways that I might not have when I was studying it. Fantastic. That's great. So if you were to send our uh, listeners a take-home message, what would it be, Rachel? Um, if, If you feel bad or wanting about your sex life in some way, it's not just you. The problem is not that you are defective. The problem is that we are in a defective society, and it's the society that we need to be challenging rather than the fabric of our own lives. Mm, Nice. Now, you have some great things posted online, and I know people will want to read your book. How can they access your material, Rachel? Uh, So my website is www.rachelhills.net, and that has information about how to buy the book, upcoming events I've been doing, uh, a whole bunch of press that I've done over the past, and I'll be in the coming months including more information on how to join the sex myth revolution and to create a society that is more sexually free for everybody. And if you want to buy the book, you can get it at all good bookstores, Barnes & Noble, your local indie, and of course you can get it online at Amazon.com. Thank you so much. Rachel, I can't thank you enough. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. You had so much important material to share. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, you're welcome. I want to thank our listeners, and I want to invite our listeners to join me next week when our guests will be Canine Companions, that is, directors, trainers, recipients of the dogs that give the life of independence and the people who receive that gift and make that gift possible. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com or tweet me at Healing for Couples. Until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. 
Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. We'll be right back.